Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I am with an all-star cast of guests for the latest edition which will discuss the MotoGP outing at the Spanish Grand Prix at Jerez de la Frontera. Uh, we are set uh, up next to race direction. Uh, is, we're recording the Monday after the race. There's some motorbikes out on track. The post-race test is ongoing and uh, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by three guests this uh this Monday morning, uh, we have our usual uh, correspondent and contributor, David Emmett from Moto Matters. Hello, David. A very good morning to you, Mr. Neil Morrison. We have uh, French correspondent, uh, Thomas Bojard from Moto Journal. Hello, Thomas. Good morning, Neil. And also uh, a new appearance, a debut appearance from veteran motocross correspondent and also MotoGP regular Adam Wheeler from On Track Off-Road. Hello, Adam. Thanks for the uh, veteran description there, Neil. And it's nice to be next to Race Direction. So uh, we got maybe a little bit further than Danny Pedrosa did yesterday. <laughs> exactly, yes. We shall, uh, we shall get on to that now. Uh, yesterday's race was uh, obviously uh, very controversial, quite dramatic. Um, in the end, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a real thriller of a race for the race win, but uh, we certainly saw plenty of incident, plenty of controversy. Um, Mark Marquez won his second consecutive race of the season and did so quite convincingly, um, but I guess the really juicy stuff that we want to start talking about was what happened just behind the three-way fight for second place. It was ongoing between the two factory Ducatis and Danny Pedrosa, and then it all went a little bit wrong, David. What, what happened and what was your view of the incident? What happened was uh, uh, two people tried to use the same piece of um, uh, uh, asphalt and that didn't work out particularly well. Um, I mean, the, uh, the big problem was really that uh, Lorenzo was quick but not quite quick enough. Jorge Lorenzo was, was um, uh, having a, he had a, he had a, got a really good start uh, but once Mar- Marcus got uh, got past him he was holding up the three people behind or the, the two people behind him which were uh, Danny Pedrosa and Andrea Dovizioso and Dovizioso had come through the field was obviously much quicker than um, uh, than Lorenzo um, uh, tried to pass him at the end of the back straight into dry sack ran a little bit wide which forced Lorenzo wide Pedrosa was right behind Pedrosa kept the inside line uh, Lorenzo cut back on the insides to uh, line himself up for turn seven and they, their, their paths sort of intersected. Uh, Danny Pedrosa, well, they, they both fell. Danny Pedrosa managed to high side himself to the moon as he always manages to do, unfortunately. And they took um, Andrea Dovicioso down uh, all at the same time. My view of it, I think it's, I mean, it's a racing incident. It was, uh, you can't say anything more than that. I mean, it's 50-50 between Lorenzo and Pedrosa if you really feel the need to point fingers. But it was uh, just one of those things. It was inevitable, it was an inevitable collision. You could see, you could see it sort of coming as soon as it developed. Okay, interesting. Uh, Thomas, would you, uh, would you agree with that in a certain respect? I mean, race direction have spoken of, uh, their plans to get a little bit tougher with uh, certain situations like this on track. Were you surprised that uh, all three guys got off without a penalty? To me, it's a fair judgment. Uh, I really respect uh, Mike Webb's work and uh, and his team because it's not easy to be the referee in in this case once more. Uh, Just like Argentina, I think they've been uh, doing a a fair job. Um, There's just one thing. I've been interviewing quite a lot of people in the paddock and I got the view of Randy de Punier, who's got... Uh, I would say um, enough experience to be able to to tell in these precise circumstances uh, what what he he thinks with the uh, I mean many years uh, in MotoGP fighting uh, fighting in the front and what he said to me is that the problem to me lies more towards Lorenzo's behavior because as he realizes that he has to cut back. He has time to look to his right to see if there's a clear track, and he doesn't do it. Um, also, Pedroza at the moment is completely banked. It's 60 uh, degrees of leaning angle. is is very small, so there's no way in the world that he can see what happens on the left side, just like uh, Joanne when he collided with Valentino Rossi in uh, last year. So, if if one person was able to avoid the carnage. It was Lorenzo, but it's a lot easier said than done at that speed 
Uh, and in these circumstances, because as Rossi pointed out, it's the one who is behind, who, just like when you're skiing. I mean, you, you decide where you go and, and you've got the responsibility. The problem in that case is that Danny Pedrosa was the one behind, but he couldn't see what was going, uh, what was happening to his left. It's a fair point to say that uh, Lorenzo should have been looking behind, but he doesn't know there's anyone coming behind him. They, or, as far as he knew, because he told his uh, pit board man that uh, all he wanted to know was the person directly behind him, so he didn't know there was a third rider. I'm not saying looking behind. I'm just saying looking to the side when you are cutting back. Because uh, as Danny says, his line was weird. He was not where he was supposed to be. His line was the consequence of of, of Dovidioso outbreaking himself and him seeing an opportunity to cut back and block his line. So once again, I do think that Mike Webb was right. I do think that Danny was once more extremely unlucky. But to me, there's another thing. Gigi Dalinia has got a problem in his hands because just like in Valencia, there's there's no team orders and two of his riders are uh, working, uh, competing against each other. Whereas Lorenzo, with the the small amount of points that he has in his championship and the clear the clear favorite position that Dovi has, should be a little bit more concerned into the situation of Dovizioso into the race. Tom, can there be team orders already by round four? I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, Lorenzo has uh, had, had such a miserable uh, beginning of his championship. And then, he, uh, Dovi said, he's not the one to complain normally about uh, other people's behavior, uh, especially in his team. But he said that he, was, he had the feeling that Lorenzo was intentionally blocking him. The problem is that Lorenzo... The problem is that both Lorenzo and Dovizioso both need contracts. And they're both writing for their contracts. We're writing that this is a consequence of a very, very early silly season. And so Dovicioso is right in the crucial point of negotiations with Ducati. He wants more money. And the way that you get more money is by uh, being in contention for the championship. Lorenzo wants to leave Ducati, but he wants to leave Ducati and, you know, and, uh, and a, a nice little wage on the side. Well, he said, you know, he had uh, races to prove his, prove his worth, I think was his words in the press comments on Thursday. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Prove his value, and the way that you prove your value is by uh, is by scoring results. And so, to him, finishing second is because if Dovi comes past, then maybe Pedrosa comes past as well, and all of a sudden your podium is gone, and you've got a fourth place. And uh, what was it Petrucci said yesterday about? Uh, about fourth place that it was worse than it was worse than second they just say well done now go away i think um my view on the incident is the the first unbelievable thing is that these riders especially the spanish uh, you know danny and and you know, jorge they must have done hundreds if not thousands of laps of this place so to even kind of consider every trajectory into that corner and you know think or anticipate what a rider's going to do especially with how close they all were, is, is a little staggering. And I think the blame lies firmly with Danny. He's too far behind. Even if two riders outbreak each other, he knows they're going to get stopped and cut back. So I think, you know, and, and this is what Andrea Davizioso said as much in his debrief yesterday, the blame lied with Jorge and also with Danny. And I just think coming back from the way he did was, uh, you know, was a little bit too extreme. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. Yeah, as you said, uh, Dobby mentioned that in his um, in his debrief yesterday. He said the rider behind has the responsibility of looking ahead. You also mentioned that there, Tom. Um, and I think this was somewhat a consequence of uh, of both Pedroza and Davizioso getting held up by Lorenzo. I think both guys felt that they had a much stronger pace than uh, than Jorge. They could see Mark running off into the distance. I think both mm. Danny and Davizioso felt at one point that they could probably maybe not beat Mark, but certainly run with him and give him something to think about in the closing laps. And uh, Jorge was uh, obviously on that soft front tyre, which uh, by the time they, they all crashed, must have been, you know, well past its uh, its best. And, uh, you know, they were having to take desperate lunges. David also mentioned also something that Jorge was uh, deliberately quite slow in the middle of the corner, almost to, to prevent him getting a run on him out of the corner and then and then breaking a very, very late indeed. The, the main problem is that Lorenzo is used to be uh, up front uh, fighting for victories and, and for championships. So he never had that teammate mentality. And rightly so, as you pointed out, he, he's, he's fighting for his future now. And, and, and rightly so also that what you point in, Adam, it's, it's difficult to establish an order that early in the championship. But they've been destroying each other's efforts. And it's, I mean, you... you Imagine how many million euros they've been and they've been working on developing uh, the bike and using different strategies, following two different passes of development for the riders, all to be annihilated in that corner. I mean, Gigi Dalinia must have been eating his hat yesterday. It's it's uh, 
and it it puts such a bad vibe into the the Ducati garage right now. It's a disaster. It's like Dovizioso was leading the championship, and after four Grand Prix, is now. 24 points behind the, the guy who, who should have won the three first uh, races of the championship bar the Argentina disaster. So for, for Ducati, this very incident is a huge blow in their whole season. I think you could also say that, well, it has been... The atmosphere has been a bit tetchy in there for a while. This is clearly isn't going to make it better, David. Yeah, I mean, we we could play a game of who was Andrea Dovi, Dovicioso's least favorite teammate, Andrea Iannone or Jorge Lorenzo. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it, it, yes, it, it has been tetchy. But again, to say, to come back to, to your point, Tom, about, um, uh, you know, he's 24 points behind. Yeah, sure he is. He's 24 points behind. Um, Mark and uh, now Dovi both have a, a DNF, or not a DNF, at least a no score. Um, and there are 15 races to go. That's a lot of points. It's an awful, uh, it's an awful lot of points. Crucial as well that maybe that was Mark's first, second, only second win here, which is quite staggering, really. And like it seems with, with Mark, is there's always one pivotal moment every year where he, he has like a, not a wake up call, but there's some, I mean, last year he mentioned, I think it was the, the test. Um, and Aragon, uh, yeah, El Barcelona, yeah, you know, that kind of, he changed his mentality a little bit. I think Argentina was obviously a, a bit of a shock to the system, how he was viewed, how, you know, everything reacted after that incident. Um, you know, MotoGP, if you take a step back and look at it overall, I mean, it's not only is it fantastically unpredictable, but, you know, moments like these with race direction, penalties, many riders' opinions and voices, it's, it's all like a big sort of melting pot at the moment. It's, it's, it's quite good to watch. It looks like Mark was really running away with this. It's certainly when you just look at the, look at the timesheet, uh, and the, you know, he was obviously getting a gap from, um, uh, from, from Lorenzo. But when you actually look at the pace that Dovicioso was doing, um, he was more or less on the same pace as Mark. And so if, Dovi had been able to get past Lorenzo early, then he, I mean, you know, ifs and buts, but if Dovicioso had been able to get past Lorenzo early, he could, based on his pace, have run with Mark, and, and then it comes down to the final corner, and we know that, you know, well, so far, was he, he's, I think he's three for three on, 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 on last corner maneuvers. So yeah. it's it, it really, if you examine the pace, you can see that Dovi was really quick, and that, that I think is important because this Ducatis have sucked at this circuit and they don't suck at this circuit anymore. And that's going to be a big deal. I think that was one of the crucial parts of the race, apart from Alex Rins's crash, Carl Crutchlow's crash, which, you know, could have affected the order as well. I think Davizioso's inability to get past Lorenzo was, was a key factor. But then he said he lost the front in three corners. Um, it was also right on the limit. So he didn't want to take that risk. Obviously, uh, the fresh circuit is always quite critical. Uh, when we come here at the start of May or late April, the temperature, the track temperature is around 40, 45, 50 degrees. Okay, the track's been resurfaced, but it's always extremely greasy. And, uh, well, we've, Davizioso said that pretty much every rider was on the limit with the front tire, completely on the limit. And that was why making an overtake that was clean was, uh, was so difficult. But a new tarmac has got the ability to mask uh, a problem, uh, chassis or, or uh, traction problem from the Ducati. It does. Because even in six months' time, I was asking the Moto3 team of Jorge Martin, and, and they said, we've lost half a second just because there are two patches in turn eight and turn one that give us less grip. So um, this, is a, this is a peculiar situation. Let's see what the, 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 the next two racetracks bring for Ducati, but sure, sure, there's an improvement. The, the other thing that changes is also the wind. It was quite windy yesterday, and it was quite gusty. And uh, you all um, often see that around, like, turn 11, 12. The wind comes from, it's blowing sort of, you know, from the, from the side that you're banked over, and it's really easy to wash out the front there. Yeah, absolutely. Um one quick thing about uh, Danny Pedrosa. Afterwards, he was having a bit of a go at race direction. He said that he was uh, he felt a lack of uh, respect from race director uh, Mike Webb. Um, he said he was quite unhappy with, well, he, he, tr he tried to understand their way of thinking. He said he was still a bit peeved with uh, the lack of punishment that came to uh, Zarco after their clash in Argentina. Well, it wasn't quite a clash, but their uh, coming together, let's say. And incident. The word you're looking for is incident. That's the one. Thank you. Yes. Very, Mr. Diplomat over here. <laughs> and, uh, 
I mean, is Danny right to feel a bit aggrieved? Um, like, do, do Tom, you've already said that you think Arius Direction was in the right. Um, was Danny right here? I saw, I was reading through um, comments on social media yesterday and the sort of the, the general consensus of the Spanish journalists was that, you know, Danny was absolutely right to be saying these things. And, uh, you know, he was, yeah. he was very, uh, uh, noble in his comments. That's right. Well, he did march in and demand to see uh, Mike Webb right in the middle of the Red Bull Rookies race where um, uh, Mike Webb is actually working as race director and he say it was responsible for the safe running of the uh, uh, of the race. So but it would a, be... But he's it a GP rider. <laughs> he's not a Red Bull rookie. That's right. Well, it would be, uh, it would be a, a little bit like uh, like me, you know, walking into the garage while, um, while uh, sort of in, in the middle of Q2 demanding to, to do a one-to-one with um, with Danny Pedrosa because uh, for, for something or other um, I don't think um, you briefly hinted on it yesterday Neil I think it was almost a little bit of a masking tactic that I mean I don't know why Danny Pedrosa after that incident feels he needs to march into race direction and pull up a, a, a you know a moment from Argentina two races beforehand I mean maybe he was at the end of his tether but it's uh, you know I think it was <laughs> ridiculous but you have to think that these people get hurt. And when you suffer, uh, your judgment can be altered. And I think this is the problem. Yeah. Also, also when you're, when you're Spanish, you, you tend to support the rider of your own countries. This is natural when, when there was the incident in Argentina, <laughs> as diplomatically uh, said by uh, Sir, Sir Emmett. Um, there was actually no contact between Joanne and, and Danny. Uh, I might be the devil's advocate in this case, but there was no contact. And okay, uh, Danny was pushed onto a white patch, but he chose to open the throttle instead of do it like Rossi did and just trying to lead the bike with no gas. Ooh, ooh, I agree, ooh, Tom. Ooh. I mean, how is Zarco held accountable for Danny's injury? I mean, I'm sorry, he pushed him wide. You know, if you crack open the throttle and you hit a, a pit and you're on the floor, then that that's not Zarco's fault. Well, that's very much what what Pedrosa was saying yesterday during his debrief. That you know he marched in there because he wanted to understand what the difference is. You know, when is it when is it a race incident? When is it not, not a race incident? I actually thought we had quite a good um, example in the Moto Three race when I, uh, uh, Aaron Canet. Uh, dived up the inside of um, a group of people and wiped them all out. Now, under normal circumstances, to me, it, it just like he outbraked himself. That would be a perfectly normal uh, uh, racing. Uh, I mean, a very unfortunate racing incident, but a normal racing incident. But the thing is, Aaron Canet, he, Aaron Canet has form because he wiped out Yurchenko a couple of uh, uh, in Argentina and got away with it. And so they're not going to let him get away with it this time. Yeah, the thing is, uh, the way uh, race direction is referring things is also taking it in account previous incidents. But in this case, I do not agree with the decision in Argentina. It should have been, for me, banned for a race in the USA because what he We're did to your change. Uh, yeah, I'm talking oh, about Kenneth. Sorry. Kenneth. Sorry. And, and uh, it, this is not, even if you're hot-headed, you're not deliberately uh, washing someone out uh, crashing your bike, destroying your own bike. What, what an example you said to the Red Bull rookies kids and, and ev everyone else watching motorcycle. It's just, uh, it should be a red card, yeah. uh, for this type of action, I mean. Sure. Yeah. Especially in that particular instant, uh, you could see, uh, Yurchenko held Kenneth up earlier in the lap and you could see Kenneth getting very visibly frustrated at it. And then he reacts later in the lap and you could see basically the start and then the cause and the end of that incident. If I can add something, uh, Yurchenko should have been quite uh, severely punished as well. Circuits invest millions of euros uh, in order to be safe, and then you have people cruising. I mean, not only on the racing line, it can be on the sideline. It should be strictly forbidden to cruise on the racetrack whatsoever. It should be completely banned. And then we would deal... I mean, how many people have been killing themselves or are still in a coma uh, just because they've, they've been such a difference in, in speed during shocks? Uh, um, just, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the German rider uh, who unfortunately got hit, uh, like, I think, 30 years ago. At Silverstone. Uh, and, uh, and there's a lot of examples like this. This is, this is what creates accidents, difference in speed. Problem is, how do you... Uh, define cruising. Uh, what's how, how can you? Th I mean, are we going back to 107 percent? The the 107 percent of your uh, what is it? 107 percent still? I can't remember. But yeah, 107 percent of your faster of your slowest lap or something. Uh, and also in Moto GP, it's not quite as bad as in Moto, in Moto Two or, or Moto Three because you've got fewer bikes and. Uh, what you're supposed to have more experience, right? Yeah, but look what happened during Q2 in in Austin. I mean, uh, Janone 
should have been punished because he was slow and waiting for Marquez and Marquez uh, has been punished and rightly so for ru ruining uh, Maverick's lap this is not fair they're taking I mean you're um, I don't know how many people listening to us that actually have raced at even at club level you can figure out how complicated it is to put everything together to set up a proper fast lap you commit yourself if you do anything wrong it's straight to hospital and you don't need to be at grand prix level for these consequences to happen and all of a sudden you have riders that allow them uh, themselves just for tactical reasons to be slow it's not fair yep i agree with that tom <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I think that, that brings us to the end of our part one of the show. Um, the discussion about, uh, yesterday's, well, the, the front of yesterday's race, the, the incident as, uh, the we'll call incident. it. Yes. Jensen can add in some uh, sound effects there with David's voice, uh, <laughs> making him sound like a, a WWF wrestler. <laughs> you have the appearance actually, I guess. <laughs> we can just get you one of those Mexican style masks. You wouldn't believe what I look like in a mankini. <laughs> yes, and uh, we don't want to. Uh, we don't want to think about that. Uh, so that moves us on to the second part of the show. Now, we were basically going to talk a little bit about um, some of the factories that are in MotoGP and the, the directions that they are heading in. Um, we can, I think, safely assume that Honda... Uh, are doing quite well. Mark Marquez leading the championship. Uh, Kyle Crutzler was on pole position. Danny Pedrosa was on the front row and would have been in podium contention had it not been for, uh, said incident. Um, but we're going to look at, uh, yeah, obviously Adam there showing me that uh, Franco Morbidelli had a strong finish in ninth place as well. Um, but we're going to look at uh, the fortunes, the contrasting fortunes of some of the factories. Um, we're going to think of, um, take away Honda. And how do we think the, the factories are doing? So we have obviously Ducati, Suzuki, Yamaha, Aprilia, and uh, KTM. So it looks at the moment like Ducati and Suzuki are in a pretty good position, whereas Yamaha and Aprilia are not. Yeah, I mean, Ducati have made, they've definitely made a, a step forward um, since last year. Uh, as you were saying, there's a, there's been two, you know, or, or as Tom was saying, there's been two different development directions. One for Dovi, which is basically, you know, the same direction, a little bit more turning in the corner, but, you know, re re retaining that same strength in acceleration. Uh, they've moved some bits. It, I mean, the, the, what I was hearing is something about two, uh, 2017 pass for the rear of the bike for, um, for Lorenzo, and that's helping uh, him. Uh, turn the bike and, and get some corner speed. Ducati are definitely in a good uh, situation. Suzuki needed to fix their engine. They fixed their engine and it's made a world of difference. Three, uh, you know, three podiums in three races. Uh, they are well on their way to losing their concessions, but they are desperate to lose their concessions just because it would be, you know, it's so, it's almost embarrassing for a factory. You don't see yourself as, uh, you know, as, as, as that level of factory. So, um, and both Rince, apart from the fact that Rince keeps on crashing, uh, you know, three crashes and a podium. And then, uh, Ian Oni has had two podiums. They're both really, really strong. They're both performing very well. So I think, you know, uh, Suzuki and Ducati are doing extremely well. And, uh, Yamaha and Aprilia are in a, a lot more problem, uh, difficulty for, for very different Just reasons. One point about Ducati as well. I think, you know, it can be quite complicated to look at the factory team with the, the various agendas there and what's going on with the riders particularly with con contract mode as Mark Marquez called it on Thursday and he was referring there to Ian Oni and, and the performances of, of Danny as well and his speed but just look at the Pramac team um, you know you've got two you got with Petrucci and Jack Miller you've got two very strong riders and I'd argue they're probably the top satellite team at the moment in terms of potential and results so uh, yeah I mean Ducati are in, in, in great shape I mean it's a real shame to see Aprilia struggling is that three DNFs for for um, Alesh now yeah so it's uh, it's looking tough work Scott Redding as well completely uncompetitive yesterday so it's um, it, it's hard I mean if you look looking around then the people that are really making kind of progress just seem to be that Suzuki and also KTM with uh, Paul Espargaro um, in his debrief this was, was almost staggered when he described how they bought three different engine concepts to MotoGP in the space of 18 months there's one thing I, I learned when I was in Sepang for the first test, and I got confirmation of that uh, uh, during the weekend, is that uh, Sylvain Gantoli's contribution to the development of the Suzuki seems to be paying off handsomely. He's got uh, Tom O'Kane as a crew chief, which is who is one of the best crew chiefs around, and, and uh, now he's doing a, a thesis for Suzuki is doing that in a Dublin university in order to fine-tune the data acquisition modes of Suzuki. And 
Sylvain told me that they, they properly invest lots of money and and uh, in a good way uh, to to develop uh, to produce upgrade parts for the JSXRR. And I was uh, talking to one of the mechanics, uh, um, a French mechanic uh, called Jacques Rocard, uh, in the pits, and he says they are uh, in Jerez, and he says when when we receive new parts now. Almost all the times there are there are benefits, uh, whereas before with slowest test riders it was more difficult to assess the parts. So it's another ace upon the sleeves, and um, and it's quite interesting because it seems that uh, you you put a, a rider who struggles now like Valentino Rossi on the Suzuki right now, uh, and it would be very very efficient. I mean, that's one of the reasons why um, uh, Suzuki are looking at Jorge Lorenzo. I mean, it might not be very good on the uh, on the Ducati, but there's no doubt that a bike that can do what the Suzuki can do, he's going to be um, he's going to be extremely competitive. I remember the the first day that um, uh, I think 2012 was it? It was 2012 that Davi went uh, uh, left uh, Repsol, yeah, and joined um, um, John Tectoir, and I remember. The first day of the Valencia test, uh, that evening, walking past the, uh, the Yamaha truck and Dovi was in there basically telling them everything. Cause, you know, experiences back to back with the, uh, the Yamaha versus the, uh, versus the Honda. So yeah, but when riders change, change brands, the first thing that the, um, um, that they that the factory does is, is pump. You can pump them for as much information as possible about the uh, about the different way that thing the, the the bikes work. Yeah, one of the reasons why uh, Cal Crutchlow feels that Honda value his opinion so much is obviously he has experience of, of the the Yamaha M1 and the Ducati as well. I guess. And um, yeah, we've spoken a little bit about Ducati and about Suzuki, but uh, well, uh, after we bigged them up, uh, all those gains that they had seemed to make in Texas, um, David Yamaha just had a real disaster of a weekend. Obviously. Strange to say that with uh, your countryman, uh, Mr. Zarko, on the podium, Tom. Uh, Zarko performing magnificently again to finish on the, to qualify in the front row and finish second. Yeah, but, but he was, he still would have been, I think, seven and a half seconds back if you look, uh, if you look at it. So they're a long way off the front. Even Zarko is a long way off the front. And, uh, Rossi would have been 10 seconds off. And, uh, I think Maverick, cause I was looking at the, uh, the, 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 the because, I mean, Mark does his silly dance down the front, uh, down the front straight and he loses three or four seconds. So you have to add that in as well. Um, uh, I think also Zarco sort of slowed up for a uh, for a second on his uh, on his last lap. So yeah, but if you look at the if you look at the gaps, the 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 gap between the Yamaha and the Honda is big. Uh, and yes, they've made a bit they've made a step forward um, since last year. But if they've made a step forward since last year, how bad must that bike have been? Um, the 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 biggest problems. I mean, to, to me again, going back to the past. Valentino Rossi made some really strong statements last night and it reminded me a lot of when he was with Ducati. He did it twice, I think at Misano in his first year and at Qatar in his second year when he basically went live on Italian TV. He made sure it was live, went live on Italian TV and said Ducati aren't doing enough and they need to step up and uh, uh, and work harder. And he was saying exactly the same thing. We need to fix the electronics. We need to fix the the uh, the electronics now. And um, uh, so, yeah, he's putting as much pressure as he possibly can on Yamaha to actually fix the situation. To me, it might be a bit harsh on the, on the engineering staff, but I think there's a bit of a cultural problem. They've been um, dominating for so long uh, with the right riders since uh, 2004, uh, with uh, in succession Valentino Rossi and Jorge Lorenzo, that, that I think they were a bit too sure of their force. Plus Masao Furosawa, who designed the, the M1 that worked, uh, got uh, retirement. And now it's Koichi Tsuji who, who, uh, who is in charge of this. And he stubbornly refused to hire people from Magneti Marelli or to get help from the Magneti Marelli staff. And this is a very Japanese way of working. This is what brought them here because now they have the technology and they are pretty much ruling the roost so far wait for ducati and ktm ktm but uh so far there nobody was there to hold their hand and uh, it it leads to s some extremes like to being too stubborn and to think that they can they can sort out their electronics problem themselves honda uh, op uh in in an opposite way hired one of the guys one of uh, an ex uh, magneti marley engineer and ducati i mean 
they live 500 away, five kilometers away from the Magnetic Marelli uh, firm, and their engineers are hailing from the same company, so they have the same way of envisioning problems. So uh, I think Valentino Rossi did that for the right reason because they need to improve their electronics. Yeah, and this is something they've been saying now, well, Rossi's been saying since uh, the tail end of 2016. Um, interestingly, I heard in Austin, uh, apparently Magneti Morelli got in touch with Yamaha, uh, I think it was last year, when they heard their riders continually complaining and offered to send some staff to the factory to say, look, we can help you with some of these electronic strategies. We can actually talk you through how you, you know, adapt it for your bike and what your bike needs, how you interpret it. And uh, Yamaha flatly refused. Uh, they want to do it in their way. And I think this is one of the things that is causing such frustration from uh, both Rossi and Vinales. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, Matt Oxley, obviously a very renowned journalist in this paddock, was trying to get to the root of the problem this weekend by asking Valentino Rossi and also Maverick Vinales whether it was mechanical grip or you know electronic grip. And electronics, like you, you guys are saying, seems to be the real root of the problem. And Maverick Mignales was quite exasperated yesterday trying to explain, you know, what he's being asked to do. He said, I, he said, in one weekend, I've been asked to ride in three different styles, you know, the Lorenzo corner speed style, then be more aggressive. And by this point in his explanation, he, he was just kind of utterly mystified. But it's not the first time we've seen that, Neil. It's, uh, you know, what is going on? The way that Rossi described it was, you know, we've got, yes, mechanical problems but also electronic problems but it's 2575 and uh, uh Yamaha have got some new parts here to test uh, but they're again they're they're mechanical parts and you know you if you get 1% or 2% better on your 25% of the of the problem uh, that's a much smaller gain than getting 1 or 2% on the electronics and to show how stubborn they are they are in the process of losing big time because uh, so far they've been also benefiting from the Tech 3 work uh, of because uh, Joanne has got a very smooth riding style and a style which is uh, the, uh, if you take in account the four riders the more comparable to the Jorge Lorenzo, Lorenzo style of old but uh, he's off to KTM and so is Tech 3 so they're gonna have uh, I, I don't know which will be the next uh, Yamaha tech uh, the next Yamaha satellite team but it's just that the information are shrinking by half uh, it's what Pete Bayer told us uh, next year we're gonna have four factory bikes and four factory riders instead of two because they intend to treat them uh, as good as they can in order to get as much data as they can because they know how precious it is so I think Yamaha right now is digging himself in quite a big hole a question for you tom because you speak you're french you speak to uh, uh, to them frenchies in tech three um why is Shoan Zarco so much faster than the yamas than the factory riders first of all it seems that he has the right frame of mind uh he's intelligent and strong enough in his head which is uh, it's easier said than not, not to care about what's going on around him and that's a huge asset as as Weird as it seems, for instance, for the contract, it's mostly Laurent who's been dealing, Laurent Felon, his manager, dealing with that. He, of course, they had discussions, but he tried to get his head as much to his work as possible and leave all the rest to the people in charge. That has two effects. First of all, you're riding better. And then uh, the people around you have got more motivation because they feel that they've got the trust of the rider. This is extremely difficult to achieve. A rider like Tom Lutti, for instance, has got really sharp technical knowledge. And sometimes he's told off by uh, his crew chief because he says, look, you're riding. I'm, I'm analyzing. And uh, this is a very common situation. So for, first of all, Joanne is someone really, really focused in his work. Then... His natural riding style is quite smooth and his feeling is, is extremely good. So he's able to uh, save the rear tire a lot. And uh, they told me yesterday that they found new ways to try and, and, uh, and, and um, get that even better. Uh, is he the, one of the best preservers of tires in the MotoGP class, do you think, Tom? Seems to be because on normally satellite bikes are, aren't meant to be, uh, to be uh, fighting up up front like that we'll see we'll have a clearer picture of that next year when he arrives on in a factory team but uh to me this this is the main reason the combination of his talent his mental strength and uh, the organization and team do you think because i mean we know that um tech three bikes have less revs than the or have fewer revs sorry they have fewer revs than the than, than the factory bikes i was told by a crew chief of a rival manufacturer the yamaha 
um, uh, Zarka has 500 less revs than the factory bike and the thousand, and CRN has a thousand less revs. Do you think that having, because, you know, that last, those last 500 revs could be the most sort of aggressive part of the power band. Do you think that could be also a factor? Frankly, I think it would be even faster. And Valentino Rossi knows that. Uh, and that's why uh, his manager, Laurent Felon, told me, It's Valentino Rossi who blocked deliberately Joan Zarco, and rightly so, because he knows, uh, look at uh, the way Valentino Rossi treated Lorenzo when he saw him. Yeah. You go to the Valentino Rossi website, and the first song a few years ago was Know you, Your Enemy. And Valentino Rossi knows everyone and everything. In super, when, he, when he got injured and, and tried the superbike machine, he already knew all the tire specs, all the settings, and in between two stints with, with the superbike uh, group, he told us direction uh, that Crutcher's team was using until the end of the year. Is that good and that knowledgeable and that well organized in his head? So um, they know how dangerous he is and that's why they tried to block him you know, by all means. I mean, l last year he had 1,000 revs less than the factory boys. This year, 500. But if you give him 500 more, I mean, look at what happened with Nico Terol uh, when they were fighting in 1-2-5. Without the right engine, he would have uh, Terol would have been beaten fair and square by Johan. I'm not telling that because I'm French. It's just a fact. You look at the data and uh, and, and and it's what is shown. I, well, that's an uh, interesting uh, discussion on, on Yamaha. And we also briefly mentioned Aprilia. Really have been having quite a tough time of it recently. Um, Alish, third DNF. Third in, mechanical yeah, DNF. third mechanical DNF in four races. Well, I was down in pit lane when um, uh, when his bike came back. I mean, I was down there and uh, Alish, he had his hand, his head in his hands. He was absolutely at his wit's end. He was distraught. Um, they were poking around the engine. It's clear. It was a brand new, fresh engine as well. Both, um, uh, Scott Redding and, and Alicia Spargaro had, uh, fresh engines on Sunday morning for warm up, which they then used in the race. That one's gone pop. Um, Aprilia have a reliability problem. And the, the, the bike is competitive. The chassis is good. The chassis is really good. The engine is not that far off, uh, 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 of what's, what's needed. It's just that they, they can't build one to actually, stick together so i mean aprilia are something which rhymes with duck uh, i went to scott's day for the team presentation uh during the winter and i know the aprilia factory quite well because we used to race with them in endurance uh, 10 or 12 years ago it was even ivano beggio that went to give us the keys of our, our bike for the 24 hours of le mans so it, there's no lack of commitment they've got a group of 75 engineers working flat out to solve the problems and i was when i was talking to um uh takeo yokoyama the the technical director of hrc he said to me Really? In Qatar? He said, we have as many engineers as they have at Aprilia. I thought there would be only 20. It's just that you don't take in account the financial support that they get from the factory. And I mean, um, uh, Alex Espargaro's crew chief used to be, used to be Casey Stoner, data acquisition engineer. And he said to me, uh, in 2011, Honda invited us to, uh, to Motegi to test the two different versions of the 2012 prototypes. The bikes were completely finished. They were two different prototypes, completely finished, even with painted sponsors, and uh, they looked like bikes that were about to be raced. So, of course, I mean, Honda must have at least four times the resources that Aprilia has. It's not really about the size of the race department. It's just the manufacturing facilities, because that's that, that's what really makes the difference. The the the, the difference is is being able to um, uh, get the tooling up to spec. I mean, we, well, we're going to talk about KTM later on, but we were talking about engines. When you produce an engine, first of all, you uh, uh, design what you what you want to make it, and then you start making prototypes. And a lot of the uh, when you're setting up the CNC machines and all the rest of it, you're actually setting it up sort of manually and then uh, testing it because you want to be able to make cha uh, changes quickly. And then once you've got it all sorted, then you can set up a jig and uh, automate the whole process. Um, but then it's, it takes much longer to, to set. But you just, that process, it's much quicker if you have lots and lots of these machines lying around and lots and lots of trained uh, uh, trained engineers and mechanics who can actually um, uh, produce, just, just pr simply produce The, the bare metal, the metal that is needed. I think you're spot on there, David, because, I mean, uh, we, I mean, maybe we can talk about KTM now, but when I was at the factory for a tour last summer, 
um, we kind of got taken to R&D behind the scenes and some of the, the engine bays they were using for normally street production bikes were being used for MotoGP engine engine tests and durability tests. And Paulo Spargaro telling us the other day, uh, Neil, that, you know, the, the new engine that Mika Calia ran to uh, 10th position yesterday, admittedly, you know, he benefited from like six riders crashing out or not finishing. But, um, you know, it's a hand-built unit. So, I mean, he mentioned, was it Red Bull Ring? You know, potentially by the time they could first use that engine in, in a race scenario. I mean, that does show a little bit the time frame that, that you know, even a small factory like KTM need to, to turn things around. And for Aprilia, they had a risky strategy. I was talking about that to Romano Albeziano, who is in charge of the race department. Uh, they chose to introduce various upgrades during the test, but the new engine in itself for the first race, only to discover at the time that it was demanding too much fuel and it hampered them for the first two races. And now, so they're catching up. They're catching up time, they're, but they are behind. And, and uh, this is uh, the feeling of the rider is better uh, because they said the engine is an improvement. But uh, of course, you have to sort out reliability, fuel consumption, and so on. And this is also particularly critical because Alicia Spargro is a rider that's out of contract this year. I pretty clearly want him to stay. But Alicia is saying that, at the, well, I think the last round he said that there was still some way off in. Uh, how they judge one another, what they expect, well, what Alicia expects is a salary and what Aprilia wants to pay him. Um, I mean, do you think that Alicia could be, I've been quite surprised not to hear his name linked with other factories more often, to be honest. Um, because it seems that at the moment he wouldn't be too content to re-sign with Aprilia, uh, no. considering the issues that they're having. Exactly. I mean, but, but the problem is, if you look at uh, Alicia's results, just his bare results, it doesn't look very impressive. But a lot of that is because, uh, you know, he's been on poor bikes. Uh, he hasn't been given opportunities. Now he's with, uh, now he's with the Aprilia. And, uh, you know, he's had lots and lots of chances to have a decent, uh, to have a decent result, except the engine keeps on going pop. Every time it looks like he could be in with a top five, um, Something happens. I mean, he, uh, I'm not sure whether it's luck or whether it's just the the uh, the, the situation that he's in um, that he can't. That's the reason he's not being linked to other rides because he hasn't. He just, you know, he can't present the he can't present the results to to say, look at me, I'm definitely a top rider. Yeah, although you could arguably say. He could present his work done at Suzuki and his work done in Aprilia, taking both factories. Yeah, but he got to beaten by his teammate at Suzuki. He got beaten by his rookie teammate at at uh, at Suzuki, and he did a lot of work at Suzuki. But he got beaten by Vinales, and that's why they hired. Uh, that's why they hired Vinales. And also, he's getting what, he 27, 28, something like that. I forget. I forget exactly. But he's in. You know, yeah, he's, he's in his late twenties, and that is the period where you. First of all, you need to be winning. Uh, and second of all, people are starting to look at you as a little bit old. I mean, we're already looking at Bradley Smith, who's 26, I think. Uh, and a little bit older. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Or 28. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm wondering where is he going to be next year? Sure. It's, this is a ruthless, ruthless game. And especially with so much young, young talent coming up, you know, Shuan Mir may be coming up. Pekka is the Pekka Banya is definitely coming up. Will Alex Marcus come up? There's all this, yeah, yeah, Bal, yeah, Balda Baldassari, maybe he comes up. All of these, uh, uh, all of these riders who, who are coming through and, um, uh, factories would, uh, if, if you haven't performed, um, or if you have, if you're not able to present, you know, wins, then you will get overlooked, even when it's not your fault. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard and cold reality. Um, and it's definitely not fair, but it's just the way it is. Yeah. David's recent uh, experience in the broadcasting industry really is coming into its own as he seeks beautifully from the second part of our show into the third as we're going into talk about KTM. You mentioned Bradley Smith, David. Um, you also mentioned their rookies coming up. KTM had a very busy weekend indeed here at Areth in terms of riders announcements. Three at different announcements on four, in four days, I think it was. <clears throat> As my voice uh, cracks there a little bit and goes all that high pitch. The emotion. <laughs> exactly. Um, so KTM have announced uh, their factory lineup for 2019 and 2020. And they also have uh, one part of uh, the jigsaw 
in the Tech Twice God. Um, and also uh, a second part of the jigsaw being that Tech 3 will also be running KTM bikes in Moto2. Of course, yeah, that's a, that's a good point, yeah, for sure. Um, looking at uh, their factory team for 2019, Adam, you uh, obviously know KTM quite well, having uh, well seen their rise in, uh, in MXGP and Supercross, of course, um, and now in MotoGP. What do you think about their uh, their work in the riders' market? Do you think it was a, a wise move to stick with Espargaro and to uh, acquire Joanne Zarco for 2019? Yeah, just from what I know from from the factory and talking to people there, I know Paul is highly rated. Um, he's got that kind of character as well as the ability. And I think importantly for the project is continuity. Um, you know, talking about a rider that's had two years on the KTM, he's going to have another two years. Um, Bradley, I mean, we asked him the question the other day as well. How much did that knee injury from the endurance race, you know, inhibit kind of his first test, his first six months on the bike? He claims not so much, but, um, you know, it's hard to kind of look at it and think, well, was he able to give everything that the, the project needed at that very sensitive and sensitive stage? Bradley, uh, you know, honestly, I, I can't see him staying in KTM. And I mentioned to you, Neil, I, I think even so, like a radical departure for him might be to head back to Moto2 with Triumph coming in as a British bike uh, brand, a British rider, someone with a, a name like Bradley Smith, if he's a top Moto2 rider being linked with a Triumph effort for next year, that could be a, a good fit for him. Um, but then again, Tectoire have uh, Miguel come, uh, Miguel Oliveira coming in as a rookie, so it might be wise to hire a slightly more experienced racer alongside him on that bike. So it's a bit of a mystery, maybe even a lash. You know, keep both of the Espargaro brothers. I mean, it, it could be it could be a nice angle because KTM also uh, rely quite heavily on KTM Spain for a lot of logistic support for the MotoGP team and their trucks and whatever else. But um, I think it's exciting times for KTM. Typically, they're moving very fast. Uh, they make big promises, and usually they tend to deliver. I don't think the riders can be unhappy with the amount of support they've been given. Um, and yeah, I mean, Tom, I mean, maybe you can give some input on how Johan Zago is viewing that whole relationship. Of course, there's the whole Red Bull rookies angle, and you know, he's he's kind of started and, and is kind of re-going, well, going back to them. More more importantly, uh, I would go to to the as I did with Yamaha to the culture of the of the the company. In 1992, there were 16 people left in the company, and in the space of 20 years, they've been 26 years now. They've been doing miracles that no other motorcycle brand in the world has grown like KTM did. And so I was in Mundofing uh, last year for a factory visit. Uh, the year before, I visited the the series department, and this time. I was in a racing department that was the, the nicknaming Spaceship Pit for Pit Byron, who's overlooking the whole thing. And to your left, you've got the WP factory. To uh, a little bit more in the distance, in the right, you've got the Punkel factory that people don't know, but it's the it engineers the crankcase and the crankshaft of all the bikes here, all the series. They keep, of course, information between uh, con uh, constructors, uh, manufacturers, uh, secret. But this is the quality of their know-how. And so I said to Pete Bayer, how do you manage to be so successful to each and every sport project that you undertake? And he says, it, it's simple. I always apply the same recipe. I favor the human relationship within the group to share competence. In order to have everyone, of course he does, and he still hire good people. But the, 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 the philosophy of KTM is that if people get along with one another, uh, that's also management and riders. Uh, they will be more efficient. And this is bloody good. Also, they, as compared to, to, uh, to, to big manufacturers like Honda, the lack of inertia is staggering. Uh, one example, one of the teams needed, uh, of the engineering team needed a bench, uh, to measure some kind of, uh, of data. They phoned Stefan Pira, the CEO. The next morning, they had an answer. The next week, they had the bench. If they move, that's the reason why they move that fast and they are so successful. I think it's also uh, worth noting that the R&D department has grown, I think, by 100%. I think it moved from like 60 to technicians to over 600 now. I mean, uh, the street bike market is incredibly strong for them, but the, the race department has benefited from that. And they've just got the right sort of specialists in, um, you know, the area of electronics. And I think there's some, some new areas that KTM need to explore with their MotoGP project could be one of the weak points. But, you know, with the amount of effort and, and funding and, and just dedication they put in, 
Uh, just to give you another figure, uh, I asked um, Sebastian Risse, the, the chief engin technical engineer, about the, uh, the, the number of engineers working, and they said 100 solely on MotoGP. That doesn't grant success. They can, they can still fail with that, but they are doing everything they can to succeed. One other thing, uh, it's an interesting technical detail. I had a chat with one of the technicians that left WP to talk to, to Kayaba and that knows Joan really well. And he said, I have a doubt. My doubt is that the steel trellis flame for the last 5% of performance might not be as good as aluminum because the flex might not be the same. So I asked precisely Sebastian Risse that question and he said, we're not worried because with Casey Stoner and then uh, in, in 250 with Mika Calio, we, we've worked with aluminum frame. And so we have some data. It's not MotoGP, but we think we have enough data to replicate exactly the behavior of these frames. What are They are at 60 degrees of leaning angle and the suspensions are like frozen because of the lean angle. And so the, the sole capacity of the bike to absorb uh, the, the, the bumps and to generate traction is, is done by the frame itself and the, and the steering head. So this seems to be extremely confident. I think also, you know, we, we shouldn't underestimate how KTM can be open with their philosophy, Tom, because, they're, you know, and for many years in, in motocross, they favored a PDS rear suspension, and that was very much like a hallmark of a KTM motocross bike. But then when they employed Stefan Evans to head up the, the motocross division, I think back in 2009, 2009 was the first time they produced the 350 with Tony Cairoli, and that was one of the first linked suspension bikes that came out from ktm and since then they've pretty much dominated in off-road so i think you know whether it comes to a different engine concept which they actually threw on the track in Hereth this weekend um whether they have to shift the frame or whatever else then there's a certain kind of openness now and maybe like you know when you're made the point about the japanese that, that could fall into their favor uh, i uh, interviewed christian gabarini at uh, qatar them earlier this year and he was saying because i was talking about the uh, about the carbon um Jorge you know, Lorenzo's the carbon, crew chief of course yes yes exactly Jorge Lorenzo crew, crew chief i was talking about because he worked with casey stoner as well and he has some experience of the carbon fiber frame and he was saying the same sort of thing like um it's much more important to work with a material you fully understand because if you fully understand it you know uh, you, you, you when you make a mistake you can understand your mistake and go back the worst thing is is if you switch to a new material and you uh, get it quite right the first time um when and it works when it stops working it's really hard to figure out why it's not working because you don't have any you don't have any surrounding data you don't have all the failed experiments to point you in the right direction and so you can get completely lost i mean look what happened with ducati when they had the, their carbon fiber uh frame and uh, uh, valentino rossi demanded uh, uh an aluminium frame that was uh, built and still is built by Sutter. uh they, it took them some years to make it work. We were all amazed basically by KTM's progress from, uh, I guess the middle of 2016 when they acquired Mika Calio as a test rider and then came into the MotoGP class full time at the start of 2017. Rapid progress through all of last year. Um, at the end of last year and through preseason testing, Paul Espargaro and Bradley Smith were telling us that they aimed to go from a, a bike that was consistently inside the top 12 to the top 10. Um, and they were aiming to start the first race of this year in the top 10 hasn't quite worked out like that. Um, what do you think? I mean, uh, are KTM they in difficulties at the moment or what, what's been holding them back so far in 2018? What I think is that it's a lot easier to be in the, the dynamic of success than in the dynamic of, of scraping for the last 10th. And this is where KTM will be showing that through metal because right now, uh, everybody's working really, really hard. And if they don't deliver, if they don't keep on improving like they do, it's going to, motivation is going to be a real problem. That's why I think uh, the fact of uh, hiring a rider like Joanne can help them. Because if you look at the performance of Bradley Smith and Paul Espargaro at Tech 3, okay, it's not exactly the same spec bikes as right now what they have. Uh, and you, and then you, uh, you look at what Joanne is doing with satellite bikes, there's a big difference in results. I'm not saying either Paul or Bradley are, uh, are bad riders because everybody here on this paddock is an outstanding rider, even the last one in Moto3. I mean, when, when we, uh, as journalists or uh, ex-club uh, racers were testing the bikes, we were 
in MotoGP and Moto3 between 15 and 20 seconds off their one lap pace. So that shows you the level just to qualify in that paddock. You look at the previous series, the CEV, it's, a, it's 50 riders in the grid in, in, in Moto3. This is bloody hard just to get there. So this is the, the best riders, the best factories in the world. And even if KTM is throwing all what they can at that, they will need a top rider, a bit of luck, and, and a bit of patience to be able to challenge the might of Honda Ducati and Yamaha. It's a good point, Tom. Yeah, I was, um, well, Pip Arrow was speaking to the media all throughout this weekend just because of the, uh, the, uh, the rider signings and things like that. And I was asking him about the start of this year and he said, looking back, maybe it wasn't such a good idea to continue bringing so many parts to the first three races of the year to test. He said it was, um, free practice sessions in, uh, in Qatar and Argentina and Austin basically became like testing sessions. And he said the 45 minute sessions just aren't effective if you have a new chassis to, to bring and to, to get some feedback on. Um, you're basically having, asking riders to judge them in, you know, four or five lap stints. And, uh, he said that basically what they did was they overcrowded the garage with, with too many new parts rather than just, uh, well, um, trying to get the best out of the setup, and that again, was again to go back to Joan Zarco. One of the one of the reasons he's been success, so successful is because he doesn't have very much to test. He just gets on and does uh, um, takes what he has and tries to get the best out of it. And that's when you get that final tenth or two uh, out of what you've got, and, and it's just not what you're uh, what you're managing at all. So. We uh, basically need to wrap up this show quite soon. Um, we have uh, gentlemen that need to uh, get their flights home, obviously. And we're going to move swiftly on to the final section of the show, the winners and losers from the race weekend. Let's try and keep this uh, contained to within around five minutes. I'm going to uh, rapid fire ask you guys for... <laughs> yeah, with you in the room, Tom. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> but um, winners from the race weekend. Uh, let's start with uh, with you, Tom. Um you had to choose one rider, uh, one team, one manufacturer, big winner that comes away from Jerez, who would you say? Marc Marquez and HRC. I mean, uh, they they've been demoralizing their their uh, the, the whole field uh, and and exactly what I mean. How quickly uh, Marc is lo- is uh, learning his lesson. He told us in a press conference yesterday. Today was not about speed. It was just about calculation and doing the right move at the right time. I'm pretty sure that if Dovizioso would have been behind him, he had still some margin. And I mean, all the crashes he did that as safely as possible uh, during during the, the practice, not taking many risks because every time it was low sides because uh, high sides are the one when you risk to be injured and in a low side with that much leaning angle, if you're not colliding in some, into somebody else, usually with the airbags, it's just a few scuff marks, but you get the data, you get what you want. Just to give you an example, um, Joan Zarco was absolutely furious in FP4, yelling after Guy Coulomb because the bike wasn't working and everything. And uh, but in Guy just really calmly said, "Yeah, okay, but we got the data we need." Uh, but it was it was quite risky because the bike was all over the place in turn 12 in Ferrari, where you are 170 k's at the apex, and uh, that's why Joan wasn't uh, happy about that. I mean, Mark did everything right. And you look at his record on the four races, he loses the first one for 0.2 seconds. Then he had one second per lap superior to the whole field in Argentina. Then he bags Austin, but also this one, which he, he only had one victory so far. At, I mean, he's, he's, he's the king of the world right now. But if he breaks his collarbone the next race, it's all to play for again. Absolutely. It's a good, uh, good suggestion. David, what about you? I am going to be a contrarian because I never am. Uh, and like I, you. No, exactly. And I'm going to say uh, uh, Dovi. I think Dovi Chioso was the, uh, is the big winner this weekend because he had absolutely no business being uh, as fast as Mark Marquez here, uh, but he was. The Ducati is supposed to suck around uh, Jerez. The, the Ducati is supposed to have sucked around Jerez since... Well, uh, forever. I think 2006 is basically they switched to the 800s. Um, Casey Stoner used to uh, used to complain about not being able to get the Ducati around here, um, and yet uh, he was competitive. He also figured out because he's had this aversion to using the aerodynamic package. Um, he's uh, figured out that okay, sometimes it can work. So I think he, we're going to see him riding that a lot more often, not as often as uh, Lorenzo, who uses it as a crutch. But for me, 
Um, I think uh, this was a, an extremely useful and, and educational weekend for Dovizioso. So he's learned a lot, but um, he lost a lot of points. Adam? Winners this weekend, it pains me um, slightly to say it because I don't like the idea of some kind of you know, vast, you know, empire emerging in, in MotoGP, but I think the VR46, I mean, in MotoGP, you had Franco Morbidelli in only his fourth MotoGP race posting his best ever result. He said he turned the bike and made a radical change on Friday and it seemed to have worked for him. If you look in Moto2, I mean, you got Bagnaia and Baldessari was completely dominant. Um, you know, it's hard not to see, well, Bagnaia is already coming into MotoGP next year and it's hard not to see Baldessari following suit, but potentially even next year as well. Um, and then Moto3 Bezeki as well has been sort of, you know, very much the revelation of Moto3. So yeah, absolutely. And leading the point standing. So it's, uh, you know, whatever Rossi has set up over there in Tabulia with the training, the education, the English lessons, the whole shebang to make these riders into a, a competitive package in Grand Prix racing is working. And, uh, you know, uh, it's wonderful for Italian fans and Italian followers, but uh, everybody needs to have a look at what they could maybe ape to, to, to get some of the same result. An interesting point. And what about uh, we move swiftly? What, no, what about you? Well, we've covered the winners there uh, quite comprehensively, I feel. Yeah. Uh, Tom, what about your loser of the weekend? Who comes away from this weekend having lost the most? Good question. Uh, I would say Dovi again. Uh, because uh, bec- it's not fair. It's exactly what the- David said. This performance has been outstanding. And to me, it deserves to be uh, almost on par uh, points-wise with with Marc Marquez. For, first of all, for the strategy. I mean... He has an open mind, and it's so difficult. I mean, you you see all these riders having uh, uh, all these beliefs in uh, a ritual pre-race ritual pre, uh, for Valentino. It's all the time just to uh, not not to have fear, and and yet Dovi is able to completely change his strategy and go for a different fairing, a different shock settings, and everything. Uh, just after analyzing the data, he's the world's fastest engineer. So I really admire him, first of all, because of that. And then because of his low profile, because he could be sitting with us and discussing. He's a great guy. So I'm feeling really sorry for him at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, basically the third weekend, run, race weekend running where Davizioso has kind of had real difficult Friday and then completely turned it around and found pace from, well, nowhere apparently. But uh, yeah, uh, disappointed to see him coming away here with no score. David, your loser? Uh, well, I'm torn because I think Alessia Spargaro deserves to be the biggest loser because it, uh, he, through absolutely no fault of his uh, of his own, is finding himself in a complete mess just because the Aprilia can't buy a build a bike which can, you know, actually finish a race. Uh, but I think um, uh, Danny Pedrosa, because of his injuries, because this this is two races out of four that he's been um, uh, fired up to kiss the sky, and it's not it's not good for <laughs> Jimmy him. Jimi Hendrix style. Oh yeah, Jimi Hendrix style, exactly. Um, so it's, it's just it, it it's just not good for him. And again, I mean, at least he had a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to say blame. Blame is the wrong word, but he, he was he was he was a little bit. He, he had a little this a little bit more in his ha- in the hand than um, uh, than in Argentina. But yeah, I mean, you got to feel sorry for him. And again, he was on for a decent result. It, you know, uh, another podium, and that's exactly the kind of results. If he is to keep his his seat at Honda, which we don't think he will, uh, uh, he needs he just needs the podiums to to be able to cement his position. Adam, um, I don't want to term it as a loser but I think uh, probably the biggest disappointment of the weekend was Cal Crutchlow um, you know setting pole position uh, getting some good British hopes stoked up um, I mean he's being quite um, evasive about you know commenting on his future I think personally the way the Hondas are for reasons we've discussed he'll be mad to leave uh, you know the RCV at the moment but yeah he had he had the pace all through the weekend and then just I think four laps he managed before that front end tucked and, and put him out so yeah, that was a real shame. Particularly, it was a it was another DNF, um, you know, because he was looking like he could get into that championship picture. Very fair choices all around, I have to say. And uh, I would like to thank uh, all of you guys. I think that's uh, our talking points for this afternoon covered. I would like to thank uh, each and every one of you, Thomas Bojard. Uh, many thanks. Your second time on the show. If there are any people that can uh, read or 
I understand. Uh, French, uh, where could we, uh, where can we find your work? Uh, first of all, at Moto Journal, um, every two weeks, like this Wednesday. Uh, tomorrow, I got a live Facebook, uh, um, session, uh, in French, uh, unfortunately for the English readers, uh, and viewers and listeners, uh, at 6 p.m. And, uh, there's a magazine called GP Plus, d- uh, devoted only to GPs that is uh, available pretty much everywhere in France. Yeah, I would recommend that every one of our listeners learns French so they can uh, understand Tom's work. As you can hear, uh, one of the finest journalists around. Thank you, Neil. And uh, David, obviously, uh, uh, our regular contributor and, uh, well, sometimes presenter, your work can obviously be found on... Uh, on the Moto Matters, and occasionally I write a, uh, I'm privileged enough to write a blog for Mr. Adam Wheeler on his outstanding on-track off-road uh, website and, uh, and uh, digital magazine, which I heartily recommend everyone go and read as well. Okay, and uh, thank you finally to you, Adam, as well. Your first time on the show. Hopefully it won't be the last. Uh, you, David, has mentioned uh, your excellent magazine, On-Track Off-Road. Uh, where else can uh, listeners read your work? Um, yeah, I mean, the mag's been running for six, seven years now. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'll miss Le Mans because I'll be in uh, in Germany for MXGP. Uh, it's around seven of 20 there. I think it's actually one of the longest FIM motorcycle racing series, that, that championship. So it asks a lot. For the moment. For the moment, yes. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, it's an online mag with a bit of a combination of motocross, supercross, superbike, MotoGP, uh, thanks to you guys as well. So, um, yeah, it'd be cool to come on a podcast again sometime. And uh, finally, just uh, thank you, listener, for tuning in for the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. We've been delighted to uh, give you our thoughts about a dramatic race weekend here in Jerez. Uh, now is the best time to remind you that, uh, well, you should probably be following us on Twitter. That is David. At Paddock Pass Pod. And Facebook. Facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. What a professional. And also, if you want to follow us on, I won't say iTunes, Apple Podcasts. It's called Apple Podcasts now. Yeah, if you follow us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, there's a whole bunch of these uh, various podcasting things. All of these podcasting services generally have ratings um, and review systems which um, help for, uh, other people find uh, find podcasts and uh, find related content. So uh, if you enjoy this, then do please leave a rating and a review and um, help other fans find the show. Excellent. So we'll be back after Le Mans in two weeks' time, and we hope to catch up with you again then. Thanks. Bye. Stop calling me. Grab it. <laughs> 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 <laughs>